FDA cannot change the regulation. FDA can change and, you know, add guidance anytime they want, but they cannot change the CFR. That has to come with the Congress. If that's the motivation for FDA for doing these things, then I'm 100% in support of that. Because while I think the system is a pretty good system, uh, it's not a perfect system. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hey guys, 2024 is right around the corner, so now is the time to upgrade your software stack. There's never been a better time to check out Greenlight Guru's quality and clinical solutions that are purpose-built for the medtech industry. Greenlight Guru solutions have been proven to deliver a 50% reduction in time spent on design and development documentation, a 50% reduction in time spent preparing for audits, and much more. Greenlight Guru has been named the number one medical quality management system by G2. So sign up for a demo today at greenlight.guru forward slash demo greenlight.guru slash demo. And for a limited time, we will give you a free quality manual. Let us know what you think. Greenlight.guru forward slash demo. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Today, uh, we're going to be talking about three guidances that were dropped from the FDA September 7th. With me today is Mike Drews. I'm excited to have you with us to talk about this concept and something that you've been teaching for a long time. Good, good to have you today, Mike. Thank you, Eddie. And always a pleasure to speak with you and before we get into the direct guidances, though, and talking about each one specifically, if we get to a chance to talk to each one specifically, do you want to give kind of an, a thought on why these might be coming out, um, what the objectives behind these might be? Yeah, great question, Eddie. And once again, thanks for the opportunity to have this discussion with you and your audience. So maybe just as a quick intro for those in the audience that might not be familiar with these recently published guidances, um, the titles of them, and we can provide links on the, the podcast website. The first one, best practices for selecting a predicate. This is the one that Eddie just mentioned a moment ago. The second one, evolutionary, uh, sorry, evolutionary expectations for 510K implants. And the third one on clinical data in 510Ks. As I said a moment ago, all of these are under the general area, the general umbrella of the 510K. In terms of your original question, what is FDA's motivation for putting these out? Well, in FDA's credit, you know, they're trying to give industry, you know, a better understanding of the 510K and what's involved in it and what the expectations are, which are think are all very admirable things. But at the same time, Eddie, and I have to point out the irony, almost hypocrisy of this. The 510K was originally created by Congress back in 1976, 1976. And we are rapidly approaching the 50 year, the one half century anniversary, if you will, of the 510K. And we're still trying to figure it out. You know, FDA has put out a litany of guidances around the 510K over the um, over the last almost half century, and we're still trying to figure out. Let me remind our audience, Eddie, that although FDA has put out guidance, many, many guidances on the 510K over the last almost five decades, the regulation itself for the 510K, and this is an important point, the regulation itself has not changed. Not one word, not one punctuation mark since it was originally created in uh, 1976. And I think that's an important point. Also, another thing that folks should remember that many don't even realize is that when the 510K was originally created uh, almost a half a century ago, it was meant by, FD by Congress to be the exception rather than the rule. Let me say that one more time, Eddie. The 510K, when it was created, was meant to be an exception rather than the rule. Fast forward nearly a half a century later, and for better or for worse, as everybody knows, the 510K has been the rule, has become the rule rather than the exception. Should it be that way? That's a topic of a whole different discussion, but maybe some of those issues we'll, we'll get into. So I uh, just wanted to give everybody a little bit of a historical perspective first before we continued on. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm glad you bring that up too. It's funny. I've I know you've 
I've heard you use the tax code as kind of a, a just a, a parallel. And I imagine if somebody was giving a, a loophole that's meant to be an exception, but it's legal to use, someone's going to start using it all the time. And so I guess that <laughs> should have been uh, uh, something we would have expected. One of the things that make me wonder, though, when when we talk about this, uh, the 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 actual uh, regulation has not changed, but the guidances have changed. Do you think this guidance has the potential to reshape how professionals approach device comparisons? I don't know. We need to get into what's actually in the guidance, but after looking at it, do you think it changes the the, the best practices? Good question, Eddie. And uh, I would like to say yes, but. Um... Maybe I'm getting old. I I I, I don't know. Uh, like I said, people have been trying to figure out the 510K, both in industry as well as the uh, FDA, for nearly a half a century. Um, you know, when I read these three guidances that just came out of uh, last month, um, just like many other guidances, I'm constantly reminded of what the old French philosopher said. I can't remember his name, but the more things change, the more they remain the same. The more things change, the more they remain the same. There's nothing in any of these guidances that is even closely new for me, for me. Now, I've been doing this for a long time. And in addition to my regulatory background, I have a good, you know, biomedical engineering and a, and a, and a medical background as well. So nothing in these guidances were good for me. And uh, sorry, new for me. I, I agree with my, most of what's in the guidance, although as we'll talk about, I think it's interesting. I think FDA is overreaching in what some of the things that they're asking for in these guidances. Not that I think that they shouldn't ask for those things, but they can ask for them in the guidance, but it's not in the regulation. So a company, if they wanted to, and I'm not suggesting that they should, but if they wanted to, they could easily push back because as we all know, guidance is not binding. Regulation is, but guidance is not. So it's admirable for FDA to try to start to raise the bar with these guidances. And I think they probably should have done that long ago. But in order to really truly raise the bar to make it enforceable, some of these changes need to be considered to put into the regulation, not simply the guidance. Okay. And I know we, we talked about three different guidances. I think maybe we need to hone in a little bit on the uh, selecting a predicate, just because we've kind of been alluding to that one for a little bit here. Maybe we can address the others towards the end of the episode. You mentioned sure. you mentioned overreaching, and so I can't help but but curious uh, if if you want to talk a little bit about your your thoughts on what aspects may be overreaching. Yeah, so and again, I think it's uh, I'd be happy to point out some of those what I consider to be p potential overreaches uh, as we discuss them. Um, but again, I just want to point out with uh, with regard to specifically substantial equivalence, I just want to remind our audience, um, and we've talked about this before as well, that a very, very, very significant number of 510Ks are still rejected today in 2023, specifically because of substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. I, is it a little bit of an aside, Eddie? And I find it interesting how so many people think that this concept of substantial equivalence is so easy, you know, such a no-brainer, you know, so easy that a caveman can do it, as the commercial says. But if it was, then how do we explain the fact that still right around 70 or 75 percent of 510Ks are rejected and of those that are rejected, about 85 percent of those are rejected specifically because of substantial equivalence or the lack thereof. So if the if substantial equivalence uh, is such an easy thing to, to, to understand, how do we explain those statistics? Back to your original question, Eddie, in, in terms of what did actually FDA provide in this particular guidance, they shared some of their best practices, and I'm sure it's going to sound um, a bit arrogant for me to say this in a public podcast, Eddie, but it is true. Many, if not all, of the best practices in this guidance, as well as the other two uh, guidances, come right out of my Mike Drew's regulatory textbook. I've been telling this to companies for a very long time. Uh, it's in some of my PowerPoint training slides that I've been using for many, many years. So, for example, they share uh, basically four criteria in best practices in selecting a uh, a predicate. Uh, choosing a predicate that is based on well, or, or sorry, that um, that uh, is cleared using well-established methods. I would like to think that all devices that are cleared, indeed all devices that come onto the market, uh, are using well-established methods. Of course, what does the phrase well-established mean? We could certainly quibble about that. 
predicates devices that meet or exceed expected safety and performance. This is a potential overreach, in my opinion, Eddie, because if you look at what the regulation says, not the guidance, but if you look at what the CFR says about the 510K, it says you have to show that your device is at least is safe. But when it comes to say, uh, sorry, when it comes to efficacy or performance, that's where it gets very nebulous. Right. So and, and also, Eddie, and, you know, here's another question to consider. And this is not unique to this guidance. We've been struggling with this for the last 50 years. How can I argue that my device is safer or has better efficacy? And yet it's still basically the same as, i.e., substantially equivalent than another device. So it's almost an oxymoron to, to try to do that. You could certainly do that in the de novo, no, no problem. But in the 510K, you know, it's I sometimes I hear people use the word new and 510K in the same sentence. And it's like, how do you put those two words together in the same sentence? The third of the criteria is predicates without unmitigated uh, use-related or design-related issues. This gets to the recall question that uh, that the industry has struggled with uh, before, and that is, should we be allowed to use a predicate um, that in and of itself was recalled? You know, and that's Congress did change the law on that a few years ago. But in my opinion, Congress changed the law too far. And we can talk about that more uh, in one of the other guidances. And then finally, predicates without an associated design related recall. That's similar to the one that uh, that that I just mentioned. Congress did change the law, but they didn't go explicit like that to say if you have a design related recall, you cannot uh, use it as a predicate. Now, is an, as on a personal note, Eddie, I think it's unconscionable if you if a company were to base their device on a similar design. If the other design is having problems, not to at least to consider the possibility that you uh, your device might have similar problems, as opposed to if it was a manufacturing defect and their device was manufactured in a method that was you know completely different ours than than ours, right? And I would like to think that we wouldn't need regulation to tell people that basing your device on a design that was recalled that led to problems is probably not the greatest idea. But unfortunately, Edian, I guess I just did, you know, I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday because some people have done exactly that. I appreciate you going through those different things that it, it, it specified in the guidance document. One of the things that kind of was uh, going on in my head when you were talking about those things is, is this, uh, you, you mentioned 1976 when the, the regulation first came out. Has the uh, the thinking on from FDA kind of evolved to this point, and now they're saying, "Hey, we have we have gradually come to this point in our thinking, and these are the things that will likely lead to rejection." For example, for your five ten k, or is this saying this is what we'd like you to do? And obviously, you can argue otherwise. What are your thoughts? Can you comment? Yeah, great question. Um, uh, yes, it does reflect more. Current thinking is the is oftentimes sure. people like to use the phrase when it comes to guidance documents as opposed to what other kind of thinking I'm not sure but but current thinking, um, but um, geez I'm sorry what can you repeat that last no question yeah yeah it, or or is it uh, are there other ways to I I almost hate to bring this up because I wouldn't want someone to argue otherwise you know why would you want someone to not use a best practice but I guess what do they mean when they say best practices you know it. Uh, to me, if you read, for example, like, is it Fred Crosby who talks about quality is free? Um, his definition of quality was it meets the standard. Well, the question is, is the standard appropriate or not? You know, That's the, you know there's, there's always that thing. Okay. Yeah. Do we have to go best practices or is the standard not good enough? I don't know. There's just well, yeah. I mean, that's that's a very good point, Eddie. And I mean, just because you're you're meeting the standard, as I've said in many of my podcast discussions before. When a company gets the 510k clearance, when they get a de novo granted, when they get a PMA approved, when they get ISO blah 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 certified, whatever it is, um, when they get a CE mark, that's the academic equivalent of being a C student. That just means that you're passing. That just means that you're meeting the standard, right? You're not flunking, right? Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're making a safe and effective product. It certainly doesn't necessarily mean that you're making a good product. My point of this uh, discussion, Eddie, and, and then we can maybe move on to, to some of the other uh, questions. Yeah. Just using the last one as an example, 
a predicate device without an associated design recall, uh, design related recall. If a company wanted to push back, and I'm not suggesting that they should, but if they wanted to, they could push back easily on purely regulated, regulatory or legal grounds because it's not in the change that uh, that Congress made. Is it in the guidance? Absolutely. Is it a Mike Drew's best practice? Absolutely. To be honest with you, if I saw one of my customers doing that, I would point it out to them. And if I thought that it was not appropriate to do that. And if they, for whatever reason, drew their line in the sand, so to speak, I would probably say, thank you very much. But you know what? Go find yourself a, a new regulatory consultant, because that is certainly not my best practice. But strictly speaking, you know, from a pure regulatory ground here, I think that FDA is on very weak grounds. I think they shouldn't be, and I think that Congress should clean this up more more um, efficiently, so to speak. But at the moment, I think they're on pretty weak grounds. Right. I don't want to beat a dead horse. I don't know whether or not it's dead yet or not, but I, <laughs> I guess in my mind, I, I'm, I'm just exploring this a little bit and thinking, okay, well, let's say a company wants to go down that route. Uh, they, they have a predicate that had a design-related recall, but they themselves have the wherewithal to think, okay, we are actually going to test and develop a device that will mitigate whatever that previous one uh, has. But in order to prevent going mm, another pathway and we can't find another predicate, I suppose that would be the area or the 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 time when it might be appropriate, depending on the company. I don't know. That's just a thought in my mind. No, I think it's a terrific thought, uh, Eddie, and uh, kudos to you for having such a thought. Because and let me slightly clarify uh, what I said a moment ago. I don't think anything that I said a moment ago was wrong, but let me just just clarify it a little Please. bit because uh, I don't want people to, to misunderstand. If you're in a situation where your device is substantially equivalent to a predicate and there's a uh, there's a similarity in your design, uh, to the other device, and specifically the other device has had a known history of problems. Never even mind if it led to a recall. It could be just a known history of problems. In my very, very strong professional opinion, not just as a regulatory consultant, but as a biomedical engineer, a company should automatically take those things into account. In other words, it's one of my Best practices as it has been for decades, Eddie, and whenever I bring any device into the market, whether it's a 510K or anything else, I will always look for similar devices and I will always look to see what kind of history that they have. Do they have problems with this device and so on? And then with that list of problems, ask yourself, is it possible for these problems to happen to me? If it's not, then why not? Like I said, if it's a manufacturing difference and your pro your device is put together using a different manufacturing method, okay. But if it's a design difference and your device has a similar design, but you have, uh, how do you want to say it, taken measures to either improve the design and or mitigate that risk such that the residual risk, residual risk, by the way, is the amount of risk that remains after we mitigate what we can in terms of the risk. If the residual risk is acceptable and, you know, we do all those things and it is still substantially equivalent, then I have no problem doing that. You know, I think it's very appropriate to use the 510K. This is why I don't think that, um, you know, solving these kinds of problems via regulation or even guidance is the right way to do it. Solving these kinds of problems via getting people to think, that's the solution here. Present company excluded, of course, I'm sure, Eddie. <laughs> well, I have one other one other question, and there's something about you talked about the potential for overreach, and particularly in the, the area when you said could meet and exceed uh, performance requirements. Yeah. So that being said, this is going to sound like a little bit of a dumb question, but could it be that safety has changed over the years? And I know that seems strange, but I'm going to, let's just say, I'm going to take a predicate from 20 years ago and that predicate was perfectly fine at the time. But uh, now we have additional risks, perhaps uh, um, cyber related risks, for example, um, and that I need to, this gets into the area well where I may think, well, is that device that's still in the market? Well, does that mean it's unsafe? It's cleared. It doesn't have a recall and, and I need to exceed that. 
Um, I don't know if you have a thought or opinion on that. <laughs> well, <laughs> in the, I, I know, Eddie, and we're still relatively new in doing these podcasts together, but I've been doing them with Greenlight for, for a decade now. Um, when have you ever asked me about something that I don't have a thought or opinion on? <laughs> Just trying to give you an out, I know. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but, but Matt, I, I think it's a good question. You know, what is safety? And has our bar for safety changed over the years? Yes, it, it, it has. And, you know, that would be a good thing. You know, this is... We, we we shouldn't we I would like to think that overall our standards today are better than they were 25 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago or whatever it is. But the other thing to remember, Etienne, is um, you mentioned uh, something to the effect of if a device is cleared and is on the market that, you know, can we assume that it's safe or effective? That's sort of a loaded question. I mean, I could give you examples of devices, and to be fair, not just devices, but drugs as well, that have gotten through the FDA that most physicians never in a million years would ever use because they question the safety and or the efficacy of the device. So this comes back to what I said before, when you're meeting the regulatory requirements, you're you're that's the academic equivalent of being a C student. I think as an industry, Eddie, and we can, and quite frankly, we should do better than that. Okay. Any other thoughts or um, things we should really be focused on and looking at with this uh, this guidance, the best practices for selecting a predicate? Uh, knowing that the comment period's not up, um, any other any other things you'd like industry to be thinking about? The only thing that I would say is uh, not to self sound self serving here, but I did a couple of webinars specifically on the 510k and substantial equivalents for Greenlight Guru, where we go into that topic in much more detail. The first one I did was several years ago, long before this particular guidance. If anybody is interested, um, please check out that webinar, because in there I get into very, very specific, uh, simple examples of substantial equivalence. And many of the practices that FDA is describing and the guidance that you and I are talking about are literally right out of those those webinars and those in those podcasts. So um, and maybe this is a topic that you and I can dig into in more detail in a in a coming podcast discussion. I would love sure. that. Okay. Um, the next one we were talking about. So three came out, and I don't. Do you want to talk a little bit to maybe the uh, the association of the three that they would all come out on the same day? I thought that was interesting. I mean, you know, um, but yeah, whichever one you want to dive into next. I, I well, maybe. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I can't comment as to why. The all three guidances were published on the same day. I have a feeling it was probably coincidence. To be fair, FDA has been working on these guidances for a while. Uh, and by the way, when you look at these three guidances, they're all pretty short. I think the longest one is like 20, 26 pages. And I hate to, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but when you look at the content, at least half of each of those pages and those guidances are a bunch of you know what, you know, so there's really only a couple of pages in each one that's really important. Notice I'm not saying new, because as I said before, there's nothing in here that's new. And some people who might not know me might think that I'm being arrogant here, but I'm really not. I mean, I've been saying these things for a long time. So take a look at these guidances. The, the first one that we just talked about. The second one, though, I think that the second and third ones go together. The clinical data that may or may not be required in a 510k, <clears throat> pardon me, and the evolutionary expectations for 510k uh, implants. Maybe the clinical data question is the better one to start out with uh, for our next part of our discussion, Eddie. Okay. Yeah, let's look in that. What, what, what would be driving the, the emphasis on the, the use of clinical data in a 510k? Well, I can tell you from my own practice, one of the most common questions that I get from customers uh, almost uh, on a weekly, if not daily base basis, is for my new medical device, how do I know whether I need clinical data or not? I mean, it's amazing to me, you know, how many people uh, ask me this question. And so many people think that this is a regulatory question. As a matter of fact, some people, Etienne, they make the assumption that if I'm doing a 510K, I do not need clinical data. Or alternatively, if I'm doing a PMA, I do need clinical data. There is nothing anywhere in the regulation that says that, and nor should it. In my opinion, whether you need to do uh, a clinical trial or not is not predicated on the regulation. That is totally agnostic to your uh, to your regulatory identity or your pathway to market. 510K, de novo, PMA, HDE, whatever it is. The decision for whether or not you need clinical data 
is based on the engineering and the biology. It's as simple as that, not the regulation, the engineering and the biology. So, for example, um, uh, looking at the key points in that guidance, FDA shares four scenarios where clinical data might be required. If there's a difference in the indication for use, if there's a difference in the technological characteristics, if substantially equivalent, substantial equivalence cannot be determined by non-clinical testing alone. And finally, if there's newly identified or increased risk for uh, compared to the predicate device. Those are the four different criteria, the four different scenarios. Again, to me, Eddie, and this is common sense. Let me just give a couple of real quick examples. So if you have a device where you're changing the indication for use compared to the predicate, first of all, you have to be a little careful because depending on how much you change it, that might kick you completely out of the 510K universe. And assuming that your device is still class two or lower, that would put you into a PMA, uh, sorry, to a de novo. Uh, so uh, if you add a significantly new or different indication, let's say, and again, I'm just going to use this as an example. Let's say the predicate device is is cleared for a diabetes indication, and you want to use exactly the same device, but you want to use it for a cancer indication, right? That's a pretty big difference in the labeling and the indications. You're probably not going to be able to show substantial equivalence just based on benchtop or literature or something. You're probably going to need clinical data to do that if you can do that and keep it in the 510k universe uh, to begin with. The second criteria, differences in technological characteristics. This is another one that I find fascinating, in, uh, Eddie, and our industry has been struggling for 50 years since the 510k has been created. How different can two different can two devices be in terms of either labeling, what we just talked about, or technology, or both? How different can they be and yet still be close enough, similar enough to be substantially equivalent. In spite of the fact that we've been using the 510K for a half a century almost, in spite of all of the guidance, including these the newest ones that were just published, there is absolutely no simple answer to that question, none whatsoever. So again, to get into the regulatory minutia a little bit more, any differences, whether it's labeling or technology, cannot do two things. One is they cannot raise new questions of safety and efficacy. That's requirement number one. And the requirement number two, they cannot change the overall risk. And specifically when it comes to risk, as you may remember, Idian, I happen to be a subject matter expert for FDA in a few different areas, one of them being risk. When it comes to risk specifically for the 510K, you have to show that there are no new risks in your device compared to that of the predicate and of the known risks between your device and the predicate. You have to show that the level of each of those known risks is the same or lower. In other words, hypothetically speaking, if FDA can identify one new question of safety and, and efficacy or if they can identify one new risk, whether it's a new risk that's not in the predicate or an increased risk already in the predicate. That one little thing alone, theoretically, would be enough to for FDA to say, sorry, this is not 510Kable. You got to think about a de novo. Now, I can tell you in the 30 plus years that I've been playing this game up until very, very recently, Eddie, and the regulation for the 510K, which, as I said earlier, has not changed one letter. The guidance has, but not the regulation. The regulation has never been interpreted or it pardon me, interpreted or enforced that literally. As a matter of fact, the example that I often use, and I've used this example many, many times at FDA, in the past, it was possible, and this actually happened several times, for a company to get an MRI onto the market using a CT as a predicate. Let me say this one more time. They got an MRI onto the market using a CT as a predicate. Now, it shouldn't take an MD or a PhD in biomedical engineering or even an RAC after somebody's name to appreciate that, gee, maybe there's some different questions, maybe some potentially new questions of safety and effectiveness. Maybe there's some different uh, uh, risks in MR, which is magnets, and CT, which is X-ray. But in the past, that happened on a regular basis. Um, today in 2023, I don't think there's a snowball's chance here in San Diego that that would ever happen. Yeah. Um, as I said, just to, to close up the last two, substantial equivalence cannot be determined by non-clinical testing alone. So sometimes you need clinical testing not to show 
safety and effectiveness, but to show substantial equivalence. If you can't do it on the benchtop or via literature or computational modeling or some other way, you might need clinical data, or, or at the very least, you might need some usability data or possibly both. Uh, and finally, as I said, their scenario number four, which I found very interesting that they put it in this guidance, newly identified or increased risk uh, compared to the predicate device. Newly identified or increased risk. Well, it's clear to me that whoever at FDA wrote these this particular part of the guidance, either, this is going to sound harsh to some people, they don't know the difference between guidance and regulation because that is not in the regulation that would automatically kick you out of the 510K. Okay, that might be a little bit harsh. Or maybe to FDA's credit, they are trying to raise the bar without continuing to wait around and have Congress do it. Uh, and unfortunately, Eddie, and you know how long it takes Congress to do anything. So I would like to think that it's the latter. I would like to give my many FDA friends the benefit of the doubt and say, this is their job to, sorry, this is their attempt to kind of ratchet things up. Just like recently, this is, you know, their attempt to ratchet the, up the regulation of LDTs, of lab developed tests, which you and I have talked about on a previous couple of podcasts. To FDA's credit, they, they got sick and tired of waiting around for Congress to do it. So they're trying to do it via the guidance. It's an admirable goal. But as I said earlier, if a company really wanted to, they could easily push back. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the uh, I, I was curious about that because when you started talking about the identifying new risks, obviously that's that's within the regulation that um, and, and then and then this clinical requirements. So. What other parts of this clinical requirements uh, or the clinical data and the pre-market notification uh, recommendations do we need to be thinking about? I mean, this uh, they they laid out pretty pretty simply. Like you said, it's not a very long document, honestly. Um, any other things that even 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 yeah. not in the document, maybe best practices that that aren't there. Well, great question, Eddie, and, and uh, let me share with you my uh, you know my regulatory logic or even simpler, my commonsensical approach. Um, and as I, uh, you know, in, in, for preparing for today's discussion, I printed off one of my PowerPoint slides from one of my training uh, that addresses this. And this slide has got to be at least 10 years old. And basically what's in the guidance is summarized on this slide. And I'd be happy to share it. You know, if somebody wants to send me an email, I'd be happy to share this particular slide. But basically what it means is, if you have a device um, in the regula regulation, not the guidance, the regulation says the device is substantially equivalent if in comparison to the predicate, it has the same intended use as the predicate and the same in technological, same technological differences. Okay, that makes sense. Or, sorry, same technological characteristics, or the device is substantially equivalent if it's the same intended use and it has different technological characteristics. What the heck does that mean? That, but what, what that's saying in common sense, common English is as long as the labeling is the same, the technology is can be the same or it can be different. What the heck does that mean? As I said before, how different can two devices be either in terms of labeling or in this case, in terms of technology and still be close enough? But the regulation, again, not the guidance, the, the regulation goes on to say any differences, whether they're in the labeling or in the technology. They cannot raise additional questions of safety and efficacy, and they cannot change the overall risk. So back to your original question, um, it's very, very simple. The closer your device is in both labeling and technology to your predicate, remember, substantial equivalence does not mean that they are exactly the same. It means that they're similar. They're basically the same. They're close. They're substantially equivalent. The closer you are to that other device, the less likely you will be reliant on clinical data. On the other hand, the more different you are between your device, your what we call the subject device and the predicate device, the more likely it's going to be to require clinical data. It's as simple as that. I mean, that's the regulatory logic. Now, the reason why I'm hesitant to give that advice uh, oftentimes, Eddie, and even though I give it all the time, is because from a regulatory perspective, that is exactly spot on the correct advice. But from a biomedical engineering perspective, it makes my blood pressure go through the roof 
when I give that device, because what is that doing, Eddie? And that's encouraging companies to bring out products that we already have, i.e. Me Too's. And let's be honest, a synonym for the 510K is a Me Too. Uh, and it creates uh, maybe not disincentives, but it certainly does not create incentives for companies to do anything truly new or different. So the clinical data question, and it's 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 amazing to me. Clinical data is never ever ever either required or not required under the regulation, and in my strong opinion, it shouldn't be. Clinical data or the lack thereof uh, is a, is based on the engineering and the biology, not the regulation. Remember the adage that I've shared sometimes before, Eddie, and there's a cert, there's a, a an adage that I used to use it to my for my medical students all the time, that is the surgery went perfectly, but the patient died anyway. Well, the regulatory equivalent of that is we followed the regulation perfectly. That is, we did all that FDA asked us to do, and yet the patient died anyway. Unfortunately, these things happen more frequently than some people would like to think. And the solution, in my opinion, even though I'm a regulatory consultant, the solution is not to create more regulation, because we've already got thousands and thousands of pages of that. The solution? Get people to think. Once again, present company excluded, of course. <laughs> well, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on just what well, well, maybe we finish the the guidance documents there's a couple of thoughts i might i might uh, want to ask about but sure. um anything else in this clinical data uh, before we move on to the the evidentiary expectations for so those are some of the highlights i think it would be great to take a deeper dive into this topic in a in a separate podcast but for right now that's probably sufficient what about the third one the evidentiary expectations for 510k implant devices what did you yeah. what did you see there <clears throat> great question so first of all let's start out with a higher level and somewhat philosophical question, and that is, should any permanent implant be 510K able? And by the way, here's a little bit of uh, of uh, regulatory trivia for you or regulatory minutia, uh, Etienne. Do you know what the regulatory definition of a permanent implant is? Not off the top of my head right now. Well, that's, uh, first of all, thank you for admitting yeah. what you don't know. My <laughs> wife has no problem reminding me of what I don't know. <laughs> so the regulatory definition of a permanent implant here in the United States, now it's different in some other places, but here in the U.S. is greater than 29 days, greater than 29 days. It is not what a lot of people think. In other words, permanent does not necessarily mean permanent in this context. It means greater than 29 days. To, to quote a famous politician, it kind of depends on your definition of is. What does is mean? Right? So, <laughs> and why it's 29 days as opposed to, you know, 45 days or a year or five days or whatever, that's a topic of a different discussion. But permanent implants, even, for example, a breast implant, something that I've been involved with both in terms of regulation as well as in terms of product, product liability, these were never intended to last the rest of the patient's life even though we call it a permanent implant. Okay. Um, many of the of the permanent implants that we use today, orthopedics is littered with examples, are 510Ks. And quite frankly, the reason why there are five, they are 510Ks is because they were on the market prior to 1976 when FDA started regula regulating medical devices and they were grandfathered in. But once again, you know, one could easily raise the question, should any device that is intended to be put in the body for more than 29 days, should it be a 510K? Before um, going into the specifics of this guidance, Eddie, because I know we're starting to get close on the end of time, any thoughts on that question of should a uh, a permanent implant be allowed to be 510K-able? No, it's a really good question. I guess part of me goes back to the uh, the biological characteristics or the 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 way the the metal interacts. So I'm just thinking like a screw. That's a titanium screw. Uh, the surface, the surface uh, material, all being equivalent. I can I can maybe see an argument there. Um, yeah. I don't know that I would across the board want to say no. They should not be 510 cable. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, let me be crystal clear on this. I'm not suggesting that no permanent implant should be 510k able. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. I don't like regulation that's written in absolutes and black or whites. You know, there's got to be an infinite number of shades of gray. Um, and you raised a perfect example in the general area of biocompatibility. I happen to be, we talked about risk a little bit earlier, as you and your audience may remember, I happen to be a subject matter expert for FDA in the area of biomaterials and biocompatibility. Very difficult, not impossible 
but difficult to show biocompatibility for uh, a, a permanent implant or indeed any implant going into your body or coming in contact with the body without doing some sort of clinical or biological or animal testing. Not impossible, but difficult to do. All right. So specifically, when it comes to, um, uh, to this, to this guidance, FDA does break down in a little bit more detail than at least I remember seeing in any previous doc, uh, guidances, but it's all in, you know, my approach already. Some of the general considerations to take into account are the indications for use, the labeling, the intended duration of the implant. Now that you have to get, you, you, you really, that scares me a little bit because if you're only going to put uh, a device in somebody's body for say a, an hour or a day or a week, does that mean from a mechanical or possibly even from a biocompatibility perspective, we should be treating it differently than a permanent implant? I'm not suggesting that in some cases it would not be justified to do that. I think there there might be cases, but I think that we have to be very, very careful how far down that road we go. Uh, and finally, uh, uh, anticipated patient and phys physician experiences with the implant. Um, uh, you know, this gets into a little bit of usability and, and so on. And, you know, metal on metal hip implants are a perfect example of that. But there are a number of non-clinical recommendations, and I'm just going to tick off the ones that are major mentioned in the guidance. Biocompatibility. And by the way, I have to share with you a quick story, Eddie, and yeah. I wish I could say this was a, 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 a make-believe, a fictitious story, but it's not. I had a customer come to me several years ago. They told me that they were working on a permanent implant. And uh, so after asking them, you know, my series of general questions, you know, have you done this? Have you done that? We got to the topic of biocompatibility. And I said, where are you on your biocompatibility testing? Now, keep in mind, Eddie, and this was for a permanent implant. Mm. And they basically turned around and they said to me, what's that? Okay. Now, <laughs> you're smiling, Eddie, and I'm being 100% serious, 100% serious. You know, I would like to think that, and again, I'm not trying to be trite here. I'm really not. But I would like to think it does not take an MD or a PhD after your name to appreciate that. Gee, if you're going to put something, you know, in contact with the patient, certainly if you're going to put them inside their body, don't you think it might be a good idea to ask if their body, specifically the immune system, is going to react in some way to this particular device? But I guess, regrettably, Eddie, and that's one of the reasons why we have thousands and thousands of pages of regulation, because we do have some people out there that apparently, well, you know where yeah. I'm going with all that. So biocompatibility is one. Sterility and shelf life, uh, reprocessing and cleaning, that's become a charged topic in the last several years with the whole um, uh, duodenoscope fiasco, uh, uh, you know, and so on. Um uh, you mentioned earlier software and especially cybersecurity, electrical safety and electromagnetic compatibility, MRI compatibility, other non-clinical performance testing. That's sort of a catch-all. That's just, you know, whatever doesn't fit in those above buckets. Animal testing and implant design, sorry, implant device design considerations. All of them, with the exception of perhaps the very last one, have been on my list for a very long time. All of them are in other guidances in other places. Okay, maybe FDA is consolidating them all into to this guidance. Perhaps that might be. A couple of other areas that are specifically pointed out in this guidance, Edian, uh, which is again evolutionary. I'm, I'm sorry, evolutionary. Evidentiary, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, evidentiary. I, I I spent a lot of time with lawyers, but I still have that might have been the first time I've word. actually seen that word. But yes, yeah, <laughs> sadly. Uh, whatever it is, uh, uh, expectations for 510K implants. So human factor or usability testing, although I'm not sure when it comes to usability, how usability of an implant is any different than another medical device, with one exception that usability, well, I don't want to say there are no exceptions, but usually when we talk about usability for a device that's going to go inside of a patient, we're talking about the usability of the surgeon being able to implant it or install it into the body properly. But there could be situations. I mentioned, you know, the hip implant problems uh, and the, and the um, um, breast implant problems and the uh, vaginal mesh problems that, that we've had. Uh, there could be usability issues on the patient or the user side as well for some of these. Yeah. Patient experience information. This is one of these newer sort of politically correct phrases. As a matter of fact, 
uh, I saw a few months ago, FDA put out a, a relatively new guidance in this general area of taking patient experience into account. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's a good thing to do. But do we really need a guidance for that? I mean, if we didn't have this political correct, hypersensitive society, would we be, would FDA be putting out a guidance for that? I don't know. It's kind of like, you know, make sure that, you know, minority groups are represented in a clinical trial. I mean, shouldn't that be common sense? Your right. your common trial, your, sorry, your clinical trial has to be representative of your patient population. And if your patient population is going to include people in other, you know, other uh, minorities or whatever, then it should be, it should be in there. Um, and finally, labeling and other recommendations like instructions for use and uh, implant cards. This is important for traceability uh, or what I like to call trackability. If there's a problem with a device, like we talked earlier about recalls, especially if you have a device that's implanted in the patient's body, how do we know which of those patients um, has this particular device. I'm involved with several uh, uh, medical device product liability cases where this is an issue in many of them, where uh, in one case in particular, the largest product liability action in the history of the medical device industry, you can probably guess which one I'm referring to. Uh, there's still some question as to whether or not all of the patients who have this particular device, it's not an implant, but whether or not all of them who have it or are using it have been notified. Because we don't know to 100% certainty who has them and who doesn't. This is an even bigger problem when it comes to implantable devices. So these are some of the things that are talked about. Again, Eddie, and in my opinion, nothing really new. All important stuff, but nothing new to me. Most of it, indeed, maybe all of it, is, I would say, common sense. Yeah. One is slight just question or maybe correction. So the patient experience information, I was reading a little about that because I was curious myself. It talked about it's. It said patient. Oh, let's see here, patients' perspectives on living with implants are most useful. It's ta- patient experience. Here it is. Patient experience data includes patient preference information and patient reported outcomes. I think that's referring to how they feel, function, and survive. It says as valid scientific evidence. So I'm curious if, if there's that any difference than um, customer feedback um, complaints. Yeah, great question, uh, Etienne. And by the way, you mentioned the word uh, feedback and especially complaints. Just as an FYI, I'm going to be doing a uh, webinar, not a podcast, but a webinar for Greenlight, I think in uh, a week or two, specifically on complaints. So I'm looking forward to taking a much deeper dive into just that one topic. So uh, uh, maybe this podcast might be published after we do that webinar. But yeah, I'll be doing that webinar very, very soon. Um, In terms of this patient experience, let me let me answer your question in in more quality terms, Eddie, because I know you're a quality guy and you're you know very familiar with the design controls. Um, this is a user need, right? So, who's the user of a permanent implant? Well, one user is the surgeon, assuming yeah. that they have to put it in surgically, but another user is the patient. Now the question becomes. Well, let's not talk about the surgeon's user needs. Let's talk about the patients because we're talking about the patient experience. Um, you know. A user need need for a patient for a hip implant might be something like, I need to be able to walk or I need to be able to walk better without, uh, you know, without the okay. same degree of pain and discomfort as I had before. And at the same time, I don't want little nasty pieces of the implant to break off and float around the rest of the body and do all these other kinds of things. <laughs> right. Again, you're, you're, you're laughing, Eddie, but. I, I, you know, I hope you and more oh, our audience appreciates our not so sort of use of humor. I mean, do we really need to define a user need as, uh, you know, toxic particles being not being generated from your device and causing all kinds of systemic issues? Right. Something yeah. to think about. But uh, once again, coming back to the engineering, one could argue, I'm, I, I personally, I would not use this argument myself, but one could argue that if it's not a user need, if it's not defined by the company in advance, and it's not translated to a design input, then this is not an engineering failure because the engineer is supposed to make a device, design a device that meets the design inputs. If you don't have the proper design inputs because you haven't identified the proper design, uh, sorry, the proper user needs, you see where I'm going right. with all this idea. Yeah. So again, if you under if you understand what I call the regulatory logic or just to apply a little common sense, all of this should make sense. Good regulation should always be based on common sense. And if it's not, 
either it needs to be changed or that regulation should not be there. Yeah, it's interesting. The more I talk to people and the more I hear about this, it's the, the dots really start to connect as a full life cycle, you know, traceability situation. So, I mean, yes, you need to be thinking about things. You get feedback from the field and needs to inform your design. Your design should evolve. You should you should be increasing the patient experience all along. So um, those are very easy things to say in the QSR. Those are very easy things to, you know, put in a bullet list in a PowerPoint slide. But what does it mean in the real world? That's where it gets interesting. So I know we're at the top of the hour. Are there any last things you'd like to say? I, I especially am curious if you have any thoughts on where the future of medtech is going with this. Are they signaling anything, uh, any future changes, or should there be changes? Any any advice? Well, first of all, should there be changes? Absolutely. And I think anybody that says, oh, no, we don't need any changes because everything that we do is you know perfect and is 100% as good as we possibly can, either they're naive or they're just flat out stupid. I mean, I don't, I don't know. So clearly things should be changed and improved and we should have discussions, you know, like you and I have been doing for a long time now uh, about how to change things and, and make things better. Um, but, you know, I mean, my best advice is, yeah, you have to understand what the regulation says. Yeah, you have to understand what the guidance says and, you know, take the time to read these these three new guidances. Um, as I said before, most of the stuff in there is you could just skim over. It's not important at all. Uh, there's only a few parts in there that are, you know, really important. Um, but to FDA's credit, I, you know, I can't say this as a matter of fact, but I would like to think that the reason why they're putting out these guidances, and as an FDA consultant, I know that there's going to be some other kinds of guidances along these lines coming out in the future. I'll let FDA disclose them if and when you know we get to that time. Um, but to FDA's credit, I would like to think, quite frankly, they're, like me, getting sick and tired of waiting around, twiddling their thumbs for Congress to make some of these changes. So they're doing what they can. FDA cannot change the regulation. FDA can change and, you know, add guidance anytime they want, but they cannot change the CFR. That has to come with the Congress. If that's the motivation for FDA for doing these things, then I'm 100% in support of that. Because while I think the system is a pretty good system, uh, it's not a perfect system. While I think the 510K, and I've said this many, many times, I think the 510K is a pretty good pathway to market. It's not a perfect pathway to market. And when the, infam when the um, Institute of Medicine, the IOM, famously or infamously came out mm, seven, eight years ago, basically said to FDA, the entire 510K program should be thrown into the trash. I was adamantly against that. That would be truly like throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and that would not be a good solution. It's a pretty good program, but there are things that we need to, to uh, fix or at least have discussions to try to make better, including some of the things we talked about today. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, in the uh, first guidance that we talked about today and the, the um, uh, predicate selection, they don't even mention predicate creep in, in that particular guidance. In my opinion, that's the Achilles heel of the 510K. And it's not even mentioned. Something to think about. Well, I know we're, we're out of time, maybe more to come on this. There's a lot more I know we could dig into. So first of all, thank you so much, Mike. Really appreciate it. I'll include these different links to webinars and of course, the links to the guidance documents. And uh, we will see you all next time, everybody. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, can I ask a special favor from you? Can you leave us a review on iTunes? I know most of us have never done that before, but if you're listening on the phone, look at the iTunes app, scroll down to the bottom where it says leave a review. It's actually really easy. Same thing with the computer. Just look for that leave a review button. This helps others find us and it lets us know how we're doing. Also, I'd personally love to hear from you on LinkedIn. Reach out to me. I, I read and respond to every message because hearing your feedback is the only way I'm going to get better. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.